become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello. Hi. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome to The Visual Workplace. I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. I am really happy that you came to join us. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of embedding the intelligence of our operational system into the physical landscape of work. So there's a couple of words there that are important, embedding, intelligence, and physically. We embed our intelligence into the physical landscape of work through the physicality of visual devices. Why? So we can work with precision, with focus, with the highest possible safety because we embedded those safety procedures and performances in the physical landscape. We can work with pace. We can work with harmony and unity so that we're lined up with what the corporate intent is. We're lined up with our metrics. We're lined up with our schedule. We're working on what on the right thing at the right time in the right way. And all of the information we need to be confident that we're doing so is embedded into the environment that surrounds us because we put it there. Because that was our intention. We made our intention concrete. We answered our need to know, first of all, and we got control over our corner of the world. And then we answered our need to share so that what we know can help others do their work with focus, with precision, with highest possible safety, with pace, with alignment. Mm? We've created a system of visual devices. It is indeed a system of language. We've made a partner not only of the people we work with and people in other departments, but of the physical landscape itself. We've made a partner of the floor. We've made friends with our benches and our tools If we're in a hospital, the charts jump into our hands and they have something important to say and we understand it because we designed it that way. We are ridding the workplace of information deficits, which is the big enemy, those information deficits. And by doing so, we reduce its symptom, which is the kind of outside shell of information deficits, and that is motion moving without working in all of its thousands and perverse forms. Okay. We are eliminating the information deficits 
that plague us, that create struggle in our work, and we're doing it by design and by intention through the methodologies of the visual workplace. I love to talk about this stuff. (laughs) I really love to. The visual workplace as a system of systems. Not point solutions, but a logic, a logic of performance, a logic of connectivity. We are smart and our workplace shows us just how smart we are because it we have made it capture that intelligence. We let the workplace speak. That's what this show is about. And surprising to you, and I will tell you, surprising to me as well, this has many, many layers. Many layers and they're also interesting. For me, a way that I, I say it sometimes is we liberate information and in doing so we liberate the human will. Because we know when information is scarce that the human will begins to shrink. It begins to take care of itself alone. It goes into a mild state of fear because it can't access the information that allows it to just be free and to align with the corporate intent or align with any kind of intent. We kind of shrink. So the liberation of information through visuality is the liberation of the human will. And when the human will is liberated, we can then aim it as we will. We can ally ourselves and align ourselves with others and with companies and with causes. We have the resources that we were born with that are native, that are given to us at our disposal. Hmm? I don't think we have yet mapped out the impact, the negative impact of not having information as we need it, when we need it, where we need it, and the detail where we're constantly making adjustments based on that information. And if we are interesting, interested in becoming excellent in mastering our performance and we find ourselves with deficits, then something inside of us shrinks. So the visual workplace is a very personal framework of thinking and performance and also improvement. And it is also has huge implications for the enterprise, for the corporation, for multi-sites. And this is what I've been exploring for the last 30 years. I started in September of 1983, I think it was. Maybe it was 84, but I think it was 83. And so we're coming right up on 30 years, for heaven's sake. Some of you who are listening are not even that old. Well, today we're going to take, but I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Glad you're here with us. You can carry on the legacy after we're gone. Everything's available on free iTunes podcasts, so, you know, just keep the podcast coming. Keep the signal. What's that great, oh, that great image in, do you know that? Uh, science fiction movie serendipity no serenity serenity oh my god what a great science fiction uh movie Uh, it's one of my favorite i always i always watch it when i need a lift it's so funny and so gruesome but also so intelligent and elegant and subtle and there's this guy who is sitting at a control panel and he's keeping the signal going He's keeping the signal going. He's a a very important part of the drama of that film, Serenity. I want to encourage you to to rent it and to watch it. So let's see if I can get that phone to stop. Yes, I forgot to unplug. Uh, 
is keeping the signal going. Today we're going to take a look at leadership, but a particular look at leadership. I call it leadership and the inversion of power or the power inversion. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about leadership and about people um, acting as though they have no authority, not demonstrating their power or not showing off their power. But I, I am I want to take it at, at a different angle and I want to kind of give you my perspective on the under, underpinnings of leadership from a visual uh, a visual workplace perspective. As you some of you know I'm working on my new book on visual leaderships these uh, pr- principles and practices of visual leadership. It's called the eye of the leader, as in what do I need to know? It's got that double meaning. And so I'm very interested in this. It's going to take us a couple of shows at least. I might segue into uh, leadership on the operator level, on the value-add level, but right now I want to talk about it as a, a kind of big picture. So please allow me. And by the way, you can see, a, uh, you can read a full discussion of this in my book, Visual Workplace, Visual Thinking. It's chapter three. And um, it's a good, I think it's a very good treatment of the whole discussion of power and the distribution or, if you will, the redistribution of power, which is one of the purposes of the visual workplace. How do we each have an organizational function? How do we all pull different paychecks but yet have equal power? How can we be powerful at work even if our pay rate is, is different? How can we bring those native gifts to the corporate intent? So a company's work culture, and I'm going to call it the work culture as compared to just plain old culture because I want to emphasize that this culture is in the workplace, is a combination of corporate purpose, beliefs, expectation, and they show what winning means in that organization. And they also show how the game is played. They show us who we want to be while we're playing the game and who we want to be when we win it. So there's a lot of personal and emotional impact in a company's work culture. Work culture has the power to inspire and also to dishearten. It can be as powerful in the absence of a coherent set of purpose, beliefs, and expectation as it is when it is fully in place and present. In fact, in many companies, work culture, frankly, is more of an accident than a clear intent. It doesn't have to be that way. An effective implementation of workplace visuality, for example, can and has resuscitated a gloomy, dispirited dispirited workforce and turned it into one that can be described as spirited and engaged contributing and creative, aligned. Aligned with what? Aligned with the corporate intent. When we implement the technologies of the visual workplace, we don't just change the physical operational environment, be it hospital, military depot, open pit mine, automotive, utilities, be it a restaurant, a retail store. We're not just changing the physical operational environment, and accelerating the flow of material and information and people in and through the facility. We are also aligning the work culture with the improvement vision of that enterprise. In some cases, we completely recast that culture, giving it a new, a fresh set 
of premises and requirements and goals, it is transformed. So I want to begin this discussion about the shift, the shift in culture, the shift from the ancient end of the continuum (laughs) where much has to change and a great deal uh, actually has to be eliminated, um, eliminated from the mind and the heart of the organization. And I call that ancient end, if you will, often in need of a full overhaul, traditional. And its opposite, the aligned and unified work culture could be called new or could be the new excellent enterprise. Something like that. So we want, we, we actually need a new paradigm, a new paradigm of thinking and being and leading. The vast majority of organizations around the United States anyway and what I've encountered around the world are just beginning this journey to excellence. Some of the companies have faced mighty challenge. They not only have to reverse their production values, adopting, if you're in manufacturing, batch size of one in lieu of large batches, designing layouts based on flow instead of on functional silos building quality in instead of inspecting it out. But they also have to rethink and reformulate the habits and the assumptions and preferences of nearly every member of the workforce and including those of managers and management itself. You know, most companies don't grasp the scope and the scale of the change that's required when they first consider altering the conventions of their production system. Oh, let's... Let's change the lot size. Well, that's challenge enough. How could there be more? And yet there is more, a great deal more. We've discovered that. We've discovered that changing batch size is just a kind of application of a tool. The more may be set aside for a time, but it cannot be ignored. And the more is the fabric of the work culture, which is the sum total of each and every interaction that transpires That's what it is. Across a shift, a day, a week, a month, a year, for the life of the enterprise, that's what's being expressed. Work culture is not an isolated event. It exists across the life of the company, and it expresses the quality of that life. It is the context of production. It is the context of performance, and it is both greater than, it's greater than both of them. It is the it is the fabric. I want to resume this and and uh, I want to move us towards a discussion of the power behind a culture, work culture, and let's pick that up after our break. Let's go into our break now, and when I come back, we will resume this, and hopefully, I'll build a case, and you will um, see the importance of this. See you in a moment. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how. 
through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, Visual Edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Gwendolyn. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Visual Workplace. We're in the second segment of the show, and today we're looking at leadership and the inversion of power. And it's going to take us a little while to kind of build the case, but we are talking about the Visual Workplace, and you can be assured that if I'm talking about this topic, I have, if not a formula, then a um, discussion of how the Visual Workplace helps to make this happen. So just before the break, we were talking about the fabric of the work culture and how the the work culture is really all of those threads going across and going up and down are made up of transactions. Those are the nodal points of the fabric where there's a cross. In a manner of speaking, work culture represents the personality as well as the consciousness of the enterprise. It mirrors its soul. I, if you know exactly what I mean. You know, I have this definition of work culture that I like to use to kind of, I came up with it because I wanted to cut through all of the uh, paraphernalia that is um, assigned to culture, all of the descriptors. I wanted it to get it down to something core. And as many of you know, I've been meditating like far too long considering the state that I'm in, but it's been like 30, 40 years. And so when you get a certain amount of quiet inside, out of that quiet comes some understandings and comes a need for simplicity. I do not lead a simple life, but I'm aware of it. (laughs) I have a very complex life, but I'm aware of it, and I seek simplicity where I can find it. And I wanted to have a simple definition of culture. So I came up with this a few years ago, and it works for me, and maybe it will work for you. Here's how I define work culture. A company's work culture is an expression of or a distillation of this, who I think I am and who I think the other is, who I think I am and who I think you are. And a work culture is aligned when I know that I am you. A work culture is aligned when I know that I am you. 
So I may think at the beginning that I, me, and you are someone completely different and, by the way, someone I don't like or someone I uh, uh, am afraid of who's my boss and I want to avoid or somebody I feel is beneath me or whatever it is. And slowly, as the culture through my own growth, but also through the growth of the company, through the intention of the corporation to have a more aligned work culture, I begin to have opportunities to see that there really isn't that much difference between me and you. And I keep going, I keep going, a year, two years, three years, slowly these wonderful elevated methodologies that have come to us over the last 25, 30 years begin to work their magic. I mean, there's a whole nother dimension of what's going on at Toyota that has to do with tolerance, forgiveness, harmony, unity. May I say love? Maybe I won't say love because it might put you off. But this kind of fullness of spirit. And over the time, I begin to tolerate you more. I begin to see through the way that you create improvement around you or respond to improvement, the way that you respect or don't respect your work, I begin to tolerate you more. And slowly, slowly, I begin to say, hey, you know, here's, here's my buddy, here's my partner. And I begin to see you as me. Okay, so that the work is happening on an enterprise and bottom line level. This is the magic of what Toyota has delivered to us. It's given us a formula for, for working through that and for creating the benefits. And believe me, there are stumbles along the way. We sometimes can't make that transition or it takes us, but I think it just takes us longer. So there's a lot of companies around that are trying to make the changes in their production system. And in a way, they keep <laughs> at, at arm's distance this idea of changing the work culture. But the work culture describes, explains, and defines who the enterprise is, what it's about, what it values, and how it conducts itself. This is playing the game, what I was saying to before, what I was saying before. All of that is available for the world to see. You ship your organization every time you ship it. The company is its work culture. And I don't mean mamby pamby, nicey group therapy stuff. I mean respect and excellence and mastery and zest and diligence and vigor and rigor. Every part that's made, every deadline that's met or missed, every piece of information shared or lost, every truth, every lie, every promise made or broken impacts that work culture and reshapes it however minutely. No detail is immune the conversion of the production system to lean, for example, the installation of pull and accelerated flow, the smoothing out of the critical path, requires a parallel and intentional transformation in the work culture. Changing your production system, or getting a production system, I should say, will certainly impact the culture of work in your organization, but it will not align your culture sufficiently to raise that impact to a level of sustainable excellence. That's where visuality comes in. And that's why I've often described visuality as the two, visuality and lean as two wings of a bird of equal importance and they must work together. And if you have one and not the other, you can't fly anywhere. You can't go off anywhere. You got a one winged bird. If you ask a bird which wing is more important, 
the left or the right or the visual or the lean, the bird will show you simply by flying off. Both of them will beat. Beat strongly and bring beat with intention towards the goal. Even companies with well-oiled paternalistic frameworks of governance, may I say, must change. That genie is out of the bottle. If you had to land on one word that captured the substance of that change, the word would be empowerment. But I want to uh, peel uh, the layers of that word empowerment. This revolution, it's a revolution in consciousness. It's a revolution in power and the redistribution of power. It started 50, 60, 70 years ago. And the world is still unraveling its implications and its applications. In business and industry, much of that activity is trained on the conversion of the work culture into one of greater balance and greater power. So we're seeking this new paradigm of power or governance as a way to define this paradigm of governance as a way to define and distribute, redistribute power. You know, my father went to the communist revolution in Moscow in 1916, 1917. He was 17 years old. He came from a very, 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 very poor and desperate family, first in Switzerland and then in uh, Italy. His father died when he was four years old. His older brother, Bruno, used to call Pop in every Sunday and beat him up. And my father said he would do it because he knew I did something wrong during the week. He didn't know what it was, but he knew he did something and he was going to, I did something and he punished me for it. Every Sunday I'd get a beating. This is for the stuff you did. (laughs) It was very, very heavy handed to say, I mean, literally heavy handed. It's the old paradigm. It has many names, the top down pyramid, the command and control the control model, the military model, the paternalistic governance model, or my own personal favorite, the thumb. The thumb. Your thumb on my head. (laughs) Whatever its name, obedience is at its heart. I say and you do. I order and you obey. I know and you don't. (laughs) In the top-down model, the general, the CEO, the manager sits at the top of the heap, the top of the pyramid, And the foot soldiers, line employees, operators, value-add associates, we line the base. Command and control is the way fathers raised their children in my time at the turn of the century. Well, I'm not quite that old. But for generations, and three generations later when that mess began, that's how my Swiss-born father raised me with a heavy hand and zero tolerance for my opinion. Zero tolerance for any question. When I left home, I never stopped asking questions because when I was home, if my question wasn't smart enough, I would get whacked. That's a dumb question, whack. You know, I mean, he had problems of his own. He had tensions that were very deep. But he also had tremendous um, uh, uh, understanding. He did a lot of things wrong, though, a lot of things. Command and control is the way fathers raise their children. Mm. It was a very popular model at the time, widely accepted as the only way, the boss, the pop at the top. 
and the child, me, at the bottom. And thus was the tree bent. Thus was the tree, the twig was bent, my twig. So from many perspectives, this approach was an undisputed success. It helped industrialize nations, colonize the, war, war, the world, win wars, rules, regulations, protocols, requirements, standards, decorum, structure, structure, structure. In the U.S., right, these were the forces that helped pull a disparate population of immigrants, the U.S., into a thriving economy. Who would argue with that? This was the approach that got things done. And they stayed done by, by gum. They stayed done. This was the paradigm of task. If personal preferences and independent thinking took a back seat to orders from the boss, it was a small sacrifice to pay for stability, perceived predictability and control. Only recently have we discovered that this top-down model is out of balance, and we've discovered why. It represents only half the equation. There's another half. And it is the mirror opposite of what, shall I call it, of the paternalistic approach. We didn't know. What did we know? We didn't know anything. We were living our lives. This is the revolution, in my opinion, that's going on now. It started in 1960s. It started when some of us ingested stuff. It wasn't me. I never could find anybody I trusted enough to ingest anything except food and maybe a glass of wine every other week. Not much at all. I was not a fringy person. But that revolution started then. Our eyes were opened in a way that they couldn't be closed again. And we're still working it out now. We're working it out on the world stage, in our politics, in our wars, in the terrible polarization that seems to always precede um, a step towards greater unity. It's very, very interesting. I love this topic. I hope you're interested. And by the way, thank you for your emails. I meant to say that at the beginning of the show. This particular show is a pre-record because I'm in Australia right now. I mean, when this is aired. But, but when we have a an open show, please call. I'd love to have a talk. There's so many things we can talk about, so many. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, about change over, changing over dye or batch production. It can be about all of these things. Visuality is big enough to hold it. So uh, we're going into a break now, and please come back after the break, and we'll continue this discussion, and we'll get to this idea of the pyramids of power. You know, the top-down, the bottom-up pyramid. But I want to kind of present it to you in, I hope, uh, a way that's useful for our discussion. See you in a minute. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. 
Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, it's Gwendolyn, and you're at the Visual Workplace. Thank you for coming today, and thank you for participating in our conversation. Today, we're talking about leadership, and we're talking about power, the inversion of power, the distribution of power, the redistribution of power, the quantum we call power, and how to how it impacts the other big thing we call work culture, how it impacts us. And just before the break, I was talking to you about the kind of very uptight model of our dads, our heavy-handed dads, at least mine, the top-down paternalistic model. And in a way, that represents um, iconically. The icon would be the pyramid. It would be the top-down pyramid with the general or the CEO or my pop at the top and little me at the bottom or the foot soldiers. Your thumb, my pop's thumb on my head, telling me to do things. I came home one day from uh, school. I was about 14. It was it was uh, beginning of the summer. And I was looking for my pop. He always sat in the backyard. He had a heart attack when he was quite young, around 50. And he was the one who brought us up while my mother went to work. Oh, boy. Was that an, <laughs> a really unfortunate occurrence? But at any rate, he was there, and I went to the back of the I went to the back uh, of the yard to find Pop, who was sitting there contemplating the universe and capitalism and communism and the other things that would run around his head, causing trouble. And he said, "Sis," he used to call me "Sis," "Sis," put on your bu- put on your boots, get the bucket. The weeping willow has backed up. Oh no. The weeping willow was in our front yard, and every now and again it would grow into our sewer. And you would know that because when it grew into our sewer, because the the, the basin would overflood. They would overflow with stuff, and I'd get on my boots and get my bucket and my little shovel, and I'd take care of it. There was no question of my saying no. There was just, oh, even that was frowned upon. Just do it. No complaints. Stop whining. Very, very different culture. He was from European, so he, he was heavy-handed. He was the general. So I want to describe to you these two pyramids. I call them the pyramids of power. But we only really see the power that's in the top-down pyramid. And I want to talk to you about this in a way that I hope will um, surmount any limitation that we might have 
on radio and you're not being able to see things because I think you'll be able to see this. And I'll also, if you want to look at my book, Chapter 3, the pyramids are laid out there and they kind of move around and do things. So the name of the, let's name the top-down pyramid as command and control. And let's name its opposite or the bottom-up pyramid as just that, the bottom-up. The foot soldiers are lining the uppermost edge of the pyramid. We've reversed it. And the general commander, CEO, is occupying the bottom spot, the apex, you know, the point, but it's pointing down. The notion of leadership is literally turned on its head. The supreme commander now becomes the, what? The servant leader. Servant leadership. Beautiful concept. And whom does that leader serve? The value-add associate, the hourly employee, the operator, the technicians, and the nurses. The message is clear. The leader's role in this new paradigm is to help value-add associates become more effective in their work and more engaged and therefore contribute increasingly more to the bottom line. He is a servant leader. And as such, he attunes and listens to the needs of those whom he serves. That is his job. But I want to say that's only part of his job. The bottom-up pyramid represents the empowerment model. Its goal is greater participation, greater employee effectiveness, and the sharing of power. Because the pyramid is inverted, the power and the authority of the enterprise flows upwards into the line of value. Value add, right? The value add level. It flows upwards into the value add. The focus of leadership has shifted to promoting and tangibly supporting others so that the process, the flow, quality, safety, cost improve. That's the long hand for improvement of overall lead time so that we begin to take time out of the process. We, 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 we gather speed, appropriate speed. The emphasis is not on the leader accomplishing his tasks but on his helping others accomplish theirs or on hers, on her helping others accomplishing theirs. For the value-add associate, the focus is no longer on unquestioning obedience. Top-down, you will do what I say. The focus is now on line employees studying and understanding the process, not obeying the rules, becoming scientists of their own process. Masters of cause. Masters of cause is the way that I like it because it sounds like masters of the world. They become masters of cause. And if you work, you know that mastery is a mastery of cause, often on the attribute level. We are mastering cause. How do you get people to do ordinary things? How do you get me to do ordinary things extraordinarily well? This is something that my sensei in the 1980s, Ryuji Fukuda, often said. Management is getting people to do ordinary things extraordinarily well. I love that quote. Ordinary things extraordinarily well. So the discussion is often, when we look at the top-down pyramid and the bottom-up pyramid, the discussion in a company, especially in the boardroom, is often which one to choose. Which one to choose. And I say it's a false discussion point. The bottom-up paradigm appears to be the polar opposite of the top-down. It's inverted, isn't it? 
and all of the previous assumptions and preferences and principles and values are now upside down. In this inversion, the previous power structure seems to be erased. We no longer have command and control. And I see to this day companies making this mistake where we have this happy little phrase that actually came from Truman, lead as though you have no authority. But if you know Harry Truman, he did that occasionally. (laughs) He did not do that all the time. He was his own powerful self as a leader, unquestioning uh, commander-in-chief when the time came. And any attempt to remove the previous power base, which will be the command and control top-down approach, would almost certainly destroy the entire organization and not just the executive level. So we need that structure. And yet in the early 1980s, such attempts were made, however wrongly, and I believe they were wrong, just we were misguided then. When we first began to learn about empowerment and its value back then, companies suddenly understood the immense power in harnessing the minds and the hearts of the workforce and not just the hands and the feet, and they rushed headlong into it. Typical American. <laughs> let's do it the opposite way. Everything we've been doing, we're wrong, wrong, wrong. Let's do it the opposite way. And in our haste, some companies mistakenly dismantled their executive and their middle management structure. Big mistake. That was when quality circles ruled, and quality circles was like 8% of the production system and the improvement system. We didn't know. It was the only percent we had been introduced to. The Japanese let that out, and I, you know, I, in my moments of grumpiness, think they did that purposely just to throw us off the scent. It took us another 10 years to realize that the Japanese miracle was not about quality circles. It was about time. Mm-hmm. The Australians did that for, for us. Did I ever tell you that story? I won't tell it now, but I will tell it soon. The Australians are the ones who discovered the secret of the Toyota production system. And it was time, time-based. Now we take it for granted. But it used to be we thought it was quality circle-based. And somehow or other that made us fail and we were going out of business. Very, very clever. So, in wholly replacing or, or, or thinking that this was right, the top-down pyramid with that of the bottom-up, the companies erroneously turned over the running of their companies to quality circles, like I said, and other empowerment configurations. They were surprised when the enterprise failed. But you and I, we have the benefit of hindsight. We're not surprised. We see now that they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They threw their own power out. They threw their own power out when they gave power to operators. Because they were in this duality, this polarized thinking. We have one or the other. But in fact, as I hope to show you, we need, we must have both because both are required. So we have now two pyramids, but what I want to describe to you is two different functions. Two different functions. So let's call the top-down pyramid, instead of command and control, let's just call that the executive function. And in that executive paradigm, the top-down, the executive is responsible for 
very special set of elements. No one else can do this. They're responsible for vision, mission, values, strategy, system, structure, resources. It's not that they don't share it once they structure it, but they're the ones who are responsible if nobody else does it. Responsible for codif- for identifying it, understanding it, codifying it, putting into pl- putting it into place, structuring it. His or her position at the top of the pyramid provides the long view that is required for the corporation to be able to align to its long-term objectives. The CEO sets the framework in place, answering what, who, why. What are we about? What are our products and services? What is our common purpose? What's our, what are our strategic objectives? And why? Why are these important? Why bother? How do they fit in? And who's responsible for these what's and why's? This is the so-called head of the snake. The head of the snake is responsible for the rest of the snake. If the head of the snake goes off, the rest of the snake is going to suffer. Goes the wrong way, the snake follows. The head of the snake is responsible for defining and executing those tasks. So well, we will complete what we need to say for today, and I hope to end with a little story about how these dilemmas come together uh, as we go into the next, our final segment of the show. But right now we're going to take a little break. I'm going to have a drink of water, and I'll see you in a moment. Thanks for tuning in to The Visual Workplace. See you in a minute. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi there, it's Gwendolyn. Welcome to the final segment of our show today. You're at the Visual Workplace, and we are discussing a component of workplace visuality that is a huge byproduct and also an intended outcome of of the journey to a visual workplace, and that is power and the redistribution of power 
We're talking about power now on the leadership level. And we are, just before the break, we were describing power as two quantums. One quantum is the top-down command and control. Let's call it a pyramid because it's easy to understand. It's a very powerful structure. And the second is the reverse, the bottom-up, what we call the empowerment pyramid. So I want to call the top-down the executive pyramid, and I'm going to call the bottom-up, not the bottom-up, but the empowerment pyramid. And we see them when we mistakenly understand how they work as a choice, one or the other, either or, dualistically. Just before the break, I was talking to you about what I see as the responsibilities or the functions of the executive pyramid, the structure, the system, strategy, resources, values, vision, mission, head of the snake. By contrast, the bottom-up or the empowerment pyramid focuses on the how, how the purpose is deployed, how the objectives are meant to be met, how products and services are made and delivered, how operations is used to fulfill the corporate intent. In terms of the value-add level, the empowerment pyramid asks employees, as I said before, to become scientists of their own process on a local level and to find ways to improve and upgrade those processes systematically, continuously to become masters of cause. Masters of Cause. I think I'll write a book. I have to think about what to put in it. But the title will be Masters of Cause on the Attribute Level. Ah, that's Pokeyoke. And for another time. So these are two very different functions executed by distinct organizational groups. And in the face of such dramatic opposites, companies struggle to decide which of the two pyramids to embrace and which to erase. Which to embrace, which to erase. Wrong question. We cannot throw either out. Instead, we must resolve or blend these two seeming opposites into a single paradigm of excellence because the enterprise needs both of them. We need both of them. And when we blend them, we get a figure that is very familiar to you, familiar enough for me to describe it on the radio, and you'll see it. And we get a star. We get a top-down pyramid, a bottom-up pyramid, and we get a six-pointed star. And what you, what you, you may not realize about this is that this star is an ancient symbol that has been used by the great civilizations in the world and the great religions because they were pretty much the same thing since time immemorial in their original ancient depictions this image of the two triangles however always has a third element and it's that third element that helps us understand why there are two triangles and why they seem to be opposite and that third element that is expressed through these two opposites, is a circle or a sphere. It's a star tetrahedron inscribed in a sphere. You can see it in Egyptian iconography, Mesopotamian iconography, Sumerian, Indian iconography. You can see it in Christian iconography, and you can see it in Judeo iconography. It's often shown as the Jewish star. But it is always, in ancient times, 
inscribed in a sphere. In other words, there's a circle around it for two-dimensional spaces. And it is the ancient symbol for unity. It is the ancient symbol for unity. And think about it. The sphere is expressed because we were able to get opposites to align. Because that's what we're seeing in this six-pointed event. The top-down pyramid, the bottom-up pyramid. These pyramids are sitting perfectly symmetrical. We'll talk about this more when we meet in our next session. But it is a blending of opposites. And it is hard work. You think about the opposites. Choose any set. Black and white. Us and them. Male and female. Democrats and Republicans. Let me be current. Muslims and Jews. Managers and hourly employees. Pro-life, pro-choice. Duality. Blended. Extremes. And they find resolution. How can this happen? How can they become unified? Well, there is only one way, and we're looking for it now in every aspect of our life on this beautiful planet, and that is we are looking for common ground. We have to look for this common ground. The work of unification is finding that common ground. Creating the blend is not just hard work. It is transformative. And when they do blend, these seeming opposites, what happens to the polar opposites? They find this center, this common ground. And around it are sections that remained enduringly and exclusively opposite, different, me. This is also a great symbol for a great marriage. So the circle is expressed through the work the circle, which is the universal symbol for for unity, period, with or without a pyramid. It's one. It's the power of one. It's one. It's one out of the many. Is done through the work of, the transformative work of finding the common ground. I believe that we'll probably run out of time in terms of my being able to start and finish a story today that illustrates this. But I've got a great deal more to say about it. And we'll I think we'll have two shows. Maybe we'll have three shows on what's left so I can round it out. But this is a very, very important discussion. Because first of all, we have to really lay down the fight and understand that that other is not the enemy. I don't want to sound like a bleeding liberal because I'm not really. But I am. I am very practical. And I see the resources being consumed in, in organizations that haven't yet put their foot upon this journey in trying to keep the opposites opposite. It's a losing battle. It's non-organic. <laughs> We're going to have to get it together. We're going to have to move as one. Oh, there's that great scene. You know that great scene from... Gladiator with Russell Crowe, and there he is, this beaten up general who goes into the middle of the um, Colosseum surrounded by people he barely knows who actually are there to make sure that he dies and they don't. And here comes uh, Hannibal, the forces of Hannibal's on their chariots with their sameteers on their wheels so they can just slice you, slice you as the wheel goes around and around, the swords are on their wheels. 
and and Russell Crowe does he he sees it's it coming, and this thing in him that made him a great general, despite the fact that he is disconnected from the world, rises up, and he shouts, "Move as one, move as one." Do you remember this moment? How fabulous it is! This is a movie that I give to leaders who come to me for coaching. I say, watch this movie, and I want you to tell me when we next meet, who are you in this movie, and who do you want to be? Who are you in this movie, and who do you want to be? Of course, I want to be Russell Crowe, at least for that moment. Movers one, and they all come together, and they 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 prevail. Things get bloody, but they prevail because they they see their individuality, but they come as one. They don't lose their individuality. But they understand the power of the unite the of unity, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about these two pyramids. We don't want to keep them separate. We want to have them accommodate each other, so we can have a powerful construct. This is you structuring an improvement. This is exactly parallel. So I really, as you might know, I've really enjoyed talking to you about these things today. They're very close to my heart, and they really are the work that goes on while we're doing Visual and Lean or TPM or OEE or SPC, Six Sigma, whatever the heck it is. There's this ground underneath, and this is what's going on. The work of of company transformation is very, very high work. Do not think of it as anything other than elevated and important. The work you're doing is important. And I really want to help to make sure you keep doing it. So you, 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 you have a large framework for this work that you're doing. It's important. Thank you very much for spending time at the Visual Workplace today. I had a great time talking with you. Please send your emails. Please call in when we have a call-in show. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm signing off. Thank you. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.